Welcome to episode 17 of the Tech Bubble. I'm your host, Amanish Reiki, and today we have something a little different for you. This is Chloe Jazzy Lau, still the co-host of the Tech Bubble, despite rumors to the contrary, you guys can't get rid of me this easily. I am now finally free from the shackles of the IB diploma and have a little more free time now that I've graduated on my hands. Hold on, I turned my back for five minutes and Mr. Williamson seems to have gone already. Is he taking an early summer? Do you know, Amna? Well, Chloe, don't you worry as he hasn't gone anywhere. But for today, it's the turn of Mr. Williamson in the hot seat as our guest. Wow, great. How the turntables. Um, the office reference, by the way. <laughs> in that case, welcome to Mr. Williamson. What? Am I, am I not getting a proper intro here? Is there anything really to say? Mm, not that I'm aware of. Only kidding. How about this, Mr. Williamson? <laughs> Mr. Williamson joined SIS back in 2004. Since that time, he has been the head of Film and Media, a creative course that seeks to provide a theoretical and practical base in media production skills, while constantly evolving to remain topical and cutting-edge for students. His unwavering dedication for instilling the love of technology in all of his students has earned him the added role of Digital Literacy Coordinator about seven years ago. Mr. Williamson is undoubtedly one of the most passionate and impactful teachers at South Island School and a strong believer in ensuring that the education system can effectively prepare students for the constantly evolving technological landscape. This is exemplified by his persistent advocacy for increased digital literacy in education, which has yielded considerable improvements not only at SIS, but throughout ESF schools in Hong Kong. We at South Island School are incredibly fortunate to have him. Ditto completely to everything you just said. I don't think I could have said it better. Mr. Williamson, I don't think we've really talked about the origins of your role or more widely the DLC itself. Um, so as former head of DLC now, I'd really be interested in knowing how things really came together, where it all begin, and your thinking at the start of all this. Sure. I'm just a little bit um, disconcerted by the fact that I can hear myself breathing through the microphone, in my headphones at the moment, which is making me, um, in terms of me trying to articulate a response to this question, uh, a little bit more challenging than I thought. So I'm gonna try and sit back a little bit further from my microphone. And, and, and on that, by the way, is nobody uh, gonna mention the fact, you know, about where we are here at the moment and our environment? When you say our environment, Mr. Williamson, you mean the 82? Hmm. I don't remember you being this cheeky back in episode one, Arminat. I think you'll have your work cut out for you, Mr. Williamson. Looks like it. Okay, note to self, vet potential hosts properly. But she did say some nice things about me. She will do for now, but monitor carefully. Now, where were we? Yes, uh, that's a good question, Chloe. You'll perhaps remember uh, Mrs. Chapman, uh, one of our former guests on the tech bubble and our former vice principal. Um, I think she was really the one who was responsible for making this happen, actually. Um, she could see how fast society was changing and the need to have somebody in school with an oversight for this area. And I, and I think the DLC started, well, I know for a fact it started very, very small. So Sam Bonacamp, who was one of our first um, DLC heads back in 2018-19, uh, was one of a handful of students to join me in D82 back when he was in year eight. So that would have been, what, 2014, I think. 
Sam Bonacamp. During his time as the head of the DLC, Sam started our very first student-led coding club, which is still going today via his protege, Christy Poon. Sam's tenure and power was also characterized by the first ever esports tournament, which he set up. He went on to work for BSD and referred to Mr. Williamson as the funky uncle. Jasmine. Oh, that's Jasmine Hewn, by the way, for our listeners behind the glass today in our podcast studio. Uh, what was that? What was what? That sped up thing that you just did. Uh, we need some better production values, Mr. Williamson. But don't worry, you've got a professional on the team now. Note to self, producer also cheeky. Vet potential producers properly. So, uh, conclusion is vet. Vet properly. I heard on the grapevine that we also had a mini esports tournament over the last few Fridays in school. Tell me more. Yeah, you heard right, Chloe. A big shout out to June Choi in 12M1 and his team for getting this back on the road here at SIS. It was a smash hit. A literal smash hit. Hello, my name is June. Um, I'm part of the group that held the esports Super Smash Bros. Interhouse. The event was an Interhouse where we got ears to play the Nintendo game Super Smash Bros against each other. The reason why we held this event is largely due to all of us requiring a cast project, but that wasn't the only reason. Um, I guess another reason was that we all liked playing games and we were kind of inspired by a similar event that happened in our previous years. We wanted to recreate, recreate something like that, but a little better. Hi, my name is Josh. And I'm Adrian. Uh, some of the challenges we faced were the hiatus. We actually planned to do this in term one, but it got pushed back until term three due to a quarantine. Another issue we faced were the venues. For the two first, for the first two events, we were we planned to do it in this space, but we got pushed into the atrium and one random classroom due to exams by the year 11s. Uh, during our uh, process of setup, the setups were was fine, but because we changed venues, the setup was pretty much useless. So we had to change venues, and then after we did that. Uh, we set up the tournament bracket, but then a bunch of people didn't show up, so we had a couple of spaces where we had no participants, so we had to just move them out of the tournament. And we also had a like, lack of controllers, so we couldn't manage all the controllers properly, and we had to borrow the participants' controllers instead of just using our own, which uh, also led to complications in uh, being in the controllers being lost or not and other stuff. Hi, I'm, T- I'm Tony. And I'm Adrian. And so we're about changes. We're planning that maybe the next time we have some sort of like event like this, we perhaps need to use like a bigger like like screen projection, maybe like the projector so that um, the, the, the image can be displayed bigger. So it's because it's hard for four people to like look at a really small screen. And next time we would also like book the place we need one month in le- at least in advance because we're getting kicked out of the space we wanted to go. And next time we would also give out a more detailed sign-up sheet because the sign-up sheet we used this time was literally a excel doc which is like very scuffed and players can insert their own personal controls if, if they needed one wow this is so exciting um it's, it's so great to see all this happening in school you know we've talked about getting esports back into the school ecosystem and the dlc conversation for so long um since sam bonacamp was here and head of dlc I wonder if we may be able to offer more choices and and diversity of options going forward. Yeah, I definitely agree, Chloe, and that is on the agenda for our next DLC meeting in June. So watch this space. Uh, No, it's in C43, not the space. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than...
than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Mr. Williamson, we've talked pretty extensively on this show about this ethical tech organization called the Center for Humane Technology. And for our more attentive listeners out there, you know, that organization, that name might ring a bell. I heard you've been doing some training with the center recently online. I, I'm sure the listeners would be curious to know why you carved out some of your very precious, precious downtime during Easter to complete this course. And, you know, just on a personal level, I would love to have some insight on, on some of the key learning highlights you got from that course. Yeah, thanks, Chloe. Well, I mean, as you know, the, the Center for Humane Technology was used quite extensively, really, as one of our resources uh, for the most recent Internet Safety Week um, back in February of 2022. Um, I mean, I also listened to their podcast, which is called Your Undivided Attention. Um, and I recommend that to all of our viewers, by the way. Um, I listen to it fairly religiously and it has given me a lot of ideas. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later on, actually, in the podcast. Um, the course itself was based on uh, training participants, um, including myself, but also people from all manner of different backgrounds, to be humane technologists. Um, and that's something that's very important to me, both philosophically and I guess also as a practitioner in school too. It's really interesting to hear you talk about humane technology and how we can introduce socially responsible options that don't exploit the user, Mr. Williamson. In fact, I recently watched The Social Dilemma, which is a film that highlights the way big social media companies employ algorithms that encourage addiction and manipulate the users. And the film is also a two-times Emmy winner, so I would definitely recommend it to our viewers as well. Just to come back to our film and media course, as a current AFP media student, I've experienced firsthand how the course manages to stay very current and topical. With an ever-evolving industry such as media, this is really very crucial to ensure that students are effectively prepared with knowledge and skills that will be useful for them in the future. However, with the accelerated pace at which advancements are being made in the media world, I think it would be very interesting to know how you manage to not only keep up with the latest trends, but also steer the media course into a direction that keeps students abreast with them. Um, that's a good question, Amina, and one which I've been, I suppose, wrestling with for several years now, given that um, you know, I've deleted both my uh, Facebook uh, and my Instagram, and indeed more recently my, my Twitter account as well. So that's all been really within the space of the last year or two. Um, and, and, you know, and that's not just because I disagree with the business model itself, although obviously this is replicated across most of the big tech industry, um, but also because of the, the, the sort of wasted or unproductive time on social media of this kind, um, which you know I felt I was I was filling a lot of my downtime with. Um, so you know I, I mentioned to our year ten AFP media class Amana that I can sense that there's a a sort of change that's been going on in in my own brain, um, a sort of neuroplastic process, which I feel is really a backward step for me, and I mean that you know on an intellectual level, um, you know so so more specifically. Vertical scrolling um, when I'm on social media causes a sort of apnea in me. Um, and this is when your breathing becomes either poor quality um, or it kind of stops altogether. So for, for the listener, if you can imagine um, when you're engaging with long email sessions, 
So, so put yourself in the, in the shoes of, for instance, a teacher. And if you've got a free lesson, you maybe have two hours and you are trying to catch up on 10, 15, 20 emails. It's very easy sometimes, especially if you're writing an email which is sensitive, you know, has to be con composed in a sensitive way or where you are dealing with, uh, you know, a, a, a really challenging issue that you're almost holding your breath as you're writing the email, which means that during the day, you're causing these additional forms of stress to your body. Um, so email apnea is not a new thing. It's been something that's been diagnosed over a number of years. But I think this also kind of, what, to go back to the scrolling in social media, I started to be aware that this was causing a sort of impatience in me. Um, so rather than reading things properly, I'm just zooming on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing all the time. And you start to adopt this lazy kind of skimming approach, a skimming technique for reading all of the articles that you're engaging with on social media. And that meant that as I was reflecting on my use of Facebook and Twitter and the other sort of tech giants, I didn't really feel as though I was digesting the content of articles anymore. I was just taking a kind of superficial overview of key ideas. And I think I was also convincing myself that because I was looking at a lot of digital literacy related articles, that that was somehow me doing my job. But it's not. I'm not really thinking about the issues. I'm, I'm simply almost like a tick list of things. I've read that, I've read that, I've read that. But um, I suppose what I wanted to do, uh, Amarna, was I wanted to reclaim the ability to delve fully into longer articles, as I would have done much easier back in my days at Warwick University, or even before the advent of Web 2.0, uh, where I was much more used to reading uh, for longer periods of time. And I, and I say this because my previous stock answer to your question would have been, well, I visit platforms like Twitter, and that keeps me abreast of, of news, and I can follow experts in my field, and I can directly ask them questions. But I think hand on heart, that's been reducing over the last few years. Um, and I, I feel as though actually a combination of reading books, wow, revolutionary, yeah? <laughs> You've never heard of that one before, listeners. Combined with access to some really excellent podcasts mm -hmm. and people who I respect in the field are keeping me far better informed than going onto Twitter. And it means I don't have all those rabbit holes to go down which was wasting my time um, you know, on those big tech platforms. And I think the last thing I would say about that is most importantly for me, it requires discipline. It requires intellectual discipline, which, which eroded for me during the Web 2.0 era. I didn't notice it to begin with. It probably took 10 years before I, I recognized it. Um, and I certainly remember when I first went on Twitter back in what, 2008, I barely used it, but it gradually increased. I spent more and more time seeing this echo chamber of viewpoints where a piece of news would break and I'd see it from 32 people, you know, and you don't need to see that, you know, whether it's a sporting story that's breaking or a story that relates to, you know, uh, you know, a key piece of news about the Russian Ukrainian conflict or something. I don't need to see the same thing 32 times. You can, you can find out the key information you need from reading you know, two or three key articles. A lot to unpack with your response there, Mr. Williamson. I think it's interesting to hear you use the phrases and, and describe in more detail the apnea and, and the neuroplastic 
processes that change as you spend more time on these social media platforms. You know, these are quite biological terms that we don't really hear in this um, conversation and the space of digital literacy in general um, to, to be used to describe the effects of doom scrolling really on these platforms. Because I, I think increasingly it shows that not only are these platforms changing our thought processes socially with how truly connected we are with, with people that we think we are connected with because of these social media platforms, but also it's, it's physically changing our bodies and, and it's having a negative and detrimental effect, you know, as we receive more research and, and we're hunched over on our backs, yeah. eyes glued to our screens, we're seeing that, you know, as, as we go on and as, as social media use evolves, more and more people are going to start experiencing these physical effects and, and when is it time to stop? Um, and also when you mentioned about skimming uh, as you're scrolling through that vertical scroll bar, yeah. mm -hmm. that's also um, a huge trap for fake news. You know, that's how echo chambers form, as you mentioned, and, and um, very sensationalized news articles spread because with, you know, micro-targeting and the, and the algorithms that these companies are using, they want you to be skimming so you don't actually get the content. So I, I think it's, it's very interesting. Uh, on the show, we often talk about the social impacts of social media, obviously, given its name. Um, but I think we've unpacked quite a few personal effects on social media, given your personal experiences. So on that score, Mr. Williamson, as we you know, travel back in history and, and talk about books, those ancient museum relics, do you have any books or podcast recommendations for us to further educate ourselves on these effects um, to, to be less likely to fall victim to them? I think my book of the year is, without doubt, The Ministry for the Future, mm -hmm. which is by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. So this is a, it's a fictional book, um, but it's a kind of pseudo-science fiction uh, novel but provides an exploration of the near future um, and the aftermath of a heat wave in India, which kills millions of people in about three or four years time. Yep, so it starts in, in the 2020s. Um, and it, it straight away for me, it has these kind of, you know, eerily close connections with the current, you know, what's referred to as wet bulb um, heat wave in, in Pakistan and India that we're seeing right now in, in 2022. So the Ministry for the Future is a fictional institution that's given the power to make changes uh, in the world, sort of like a kind of mega-funded INGO. Yeah, you want to think of it in those terms. Um, and it tries to make those changes, but inevitably the book outlines the many kind of obstacles that are set in their way from preventing from their achieving their goals, which is obviously to, you know, to stop climate apocalypse. Um, now, that sounds really depressing, but actually sort of conversely, it's a very uplifting book, which for me outlines a genuine route out of our current predicament. It, it also makes, it, it foreshadows some interesting developments um, in the use of drone technologies and things like that um, as a means of you know, so for instance, in the future, um, in this vision, the Indian government, as currently is, is swept out of power, and they are replaced with the most radical kind of, um, you know, renewable energy industry that the world's ever seen. And the Indians then um, cut off their connections 
with anybody in power in their government who has been involved in sort of, I suppose, forwarding the agenda of the West. Um, and they start to radicalize. And that includes, you know, using drone technologies to start, you know, firing down um, forms of technology like aeroplanes that are still using carbon fuels. Now, this is quite a radical version of the future. But I suppose if you see firsthand terrible tragedies unfolding, um, which is what the future may hold, you know, certainly according to some commentators, uh, you know, we've seen some of the heat waves in places like Canada, you know, last summer. And this is happening and it's probably, I think, affecting the, the most, the, the poorest people in the world first. I think those are the, the, the groups, the subgroups that are going to suffer the most on, as, as we see climate change. So it's a fascinating read anyway. Um, and it's one that, like I say, it sounds a very depressing account. But to me, it, it, it shows some kind of trajectory where we can we can sort of dig our way out of it. Um, and that's got sort of a, a connection to technology, but the, the, the podcast that I'm going to recommend um, have a much stronger connection. And I would particularly emphasize Daniel Schmachtenberger and Nate Hagens. Um, they've done a, well, they're doing a series of three podcasts at the moment. Uh, they're all on YouTube. Um, I've just seen the second part of the series and the third part is where they're going to come up with all of their solutions. So they're exploring the problems in parts one and two. Um, that we're seeing in the world at the moment. And it shows how technology is so interconnected with energy and the economy. Um, so Schmachtenberger and Hagens are both brilliant thinkers and really make clear why interdisciplinary thinking is so essential and essential in tackling the many challenges that we face as a species at this time. So, you know, good advocacy for global thinking and TOK. I think that's quite interesting as you talk about, you know, the, these dystopian fiction books. I think the more and more we're thinking about dystopian fiction, the more we realize that most of it is grounded in reality. And yeah. that's why it is dystopian in nature, because it's so close to home or almost feels like we're one step away. Um, and going back to what you mentioned with the podcast and the very interdisciplinary thinking around this tech space. Um, now, I know you take um, GCSE computer science. Um, and I've heard it's a it's a very progressive course that tries to interlink different parts of the curriculum together. So what are your thoughts on this, given given the course and given everything else you've learned? Yeah, I definitely agree. So I think what's always fascinated me about technology and about computer science and also media is that these are very progressive spaces and they have so many applications with a variety of different fields that you can really use them for, well, absolutely anything. So I think that, yeah, it's definitely a very progressive course. And I think it, I think really we should actually be teaching everyone the basic skills and the basic like languages of coding and things like that so that everyone has a basic knowledge of, um, of these kind of skills that can be really applied in any career path that you choose to take. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, if I was to return to the question that you asked, uh, Amana, and then I'm going to connect that to the, the question you just asked, Chloe, as well. I would say that my own lifelong learning changes from one week to the next. Yeah. Um, and I try to share this with, with my team. Yeah. So um, with Miss Curran uh, and Miss Stanton, um, you know, in terms of film and media teaching and ultimately with the students, you know, in, in, in my classroom. So 
the law, the learning that I try to provide always attempts to be authentic. That's what I'm always attempting to achieve. It doesn't always work that way, but that's the ideal at least. And I think increasingly I see this as a two-way process with, with my students because there's so much that students can bring to the learning process. So for instance, I'm at, you yourself have been running Tech Connect, which is one of our extracurricular activities um, you know, on a Thursday evening. And you've been doing that now for the last couple of years. Uh, equally, we've got Christy Poon, uh, and then we've got, you know, she's been supported more recently by um, Andrew and Shrians to run Coding Club. So we've got educational facilities, not schools, which become an exchange of learning. Yeah, um, it, it doesn't have to always be one way. Miss um, Redmond, for instance, approached me the last couple of days, and she would like to run a to, to be involved in the beginners coding club for next year, but she wants to learn the coding at the same time. So you know she'll get access to HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Um, and we've now got this kind of flat learning environment where the students get the chance to be the teachers in some contexts. That to me seems, and, and I can talk more on this later in the show, but to me that seems to be where we need to move towards. I agree. And I think that really is the core of education is that the closer you are to, to beginner, which as us students, you know, if we self-learn computer science, I'm not, you're, you're teaching these very novel concepts in Tech Connect, you know, you're closer to being a beginner because you had to, you know what it took to get from a beginner to where you are now. And I think that learning curve and being aware of that learning curve makes you an even better teacher. Yeah. because you then know how to translate these concepts into something that's accessible and understandable. So, so I really like that, that Ms. Redmond is taking this initiative to learn it herself and teach it as well. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I think, you know, the, the more that we see of that, the more that teachers are able to divorce their pride from the learning environment Absolutely. and acknowledge that, you know, if, if we're challenging the sort of didactic approach of education, where we're, we're not talking about the sage on the stage anymore who stands at the front and is the font of all knowledge in the classroom, once we get beyond that, we can start to recognize that there are pools of knowledge in the classroom. That doesn't mean to say there's not still an agency in the role of the teacher. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that there are opportunities that could be, you know, better utilized in education for a crossover between students and, 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 and teachers. And like I say, I've got more to say on that, but I'll, I'll come to it later in the, in the podcast. Of course, interesting that you say pools of learning as well. And it seems like you're divorcing learning from school itself and, mm -hmm. and sort of bringing that to a broader scope of exchange of learnings, education facilities, as you mentioned just now. So why, why do you specifically want to divorce those concepts and not confine these learning spaces to only schools? Yeah, it's a good, perfect segue, actually, Chloe. Um, my second book recommendation, although I hasten to add that it's a really challenging read, is Education in a Time Between Worlds by Zach Steen. Um, to give you a, a kind of sense of it, Steen discusses the idea that modern day educational facilities need to transform, first of all. Um, and he, his book is essentially six major essays that he's written, which are then kind of... I suppose, elaborated on into, into various different chapters. Um, and he, like many other commentators, is very critical of standardised testing procedures, uh, which 
you know, these really took over after World War Two as the as the standard way, particularly in America, that um, you know the education, uh, you know, was was sort of run. Um, so, a key quote from Steen is that schooling is just one form of education, and. As te technological change accelerates, I think that Steen is basically suggesting that the subjects we teach in school are relevant to a reality which has already passed. Yeah, so the w we go through university, the teachers, to get their knowledge, and then it may well be that that teacher has been in that subject then for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, when the world has moved on in that time, but they're no longer in the university. That's not to say, of course, that we're not keeping abreast of what's going on in the world and continuing to develop our knowledge and understanding. But I think Steen is trying to suggest that there is a, there's a sort of divorce there where the shifts in society are happening more quickly than we can keep up with, yeah, in terms of our skill set. And, you know, also who wants to be told that your subject is no longer relevant, yeah, in, in, in the current sort of system. So, with the many kind of existential threats that we face, um, there are issues with the system, which he highlights, yeah, problems with the system, and the need to use education for the purpose of, for instance, getting good grades or to get into a prestigious university to get good jobs. The sort of stuff we were talking about, actually, Chloe, earlier on yeah. before we started the show. Um, this is a very kind of reductive way of thinking about education. Um, and Steen discusses a need for what he calls a meta-narrative, which is like an understanding of how and why we learn. Now, what's the purpose in being here? If it's not just to get good grades and go to university, then what, what else is education really all about? Yeah. Um, so I believe that in the ESF, we've, we've kind of started that journey, but we've done it in a sort of tentative manner. Um, you know, he refers to something called teacherly authority. Um, and in particular... Rather than this being hierarchical or a kind of one-way process, the most valuable kind of learning, according to Steen, is the opportunity for students and teachers to learn together in a more collaborative manner. So that then upskills me. You know, Let's look at a genuine uh, inquiry-based project as a group of, 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 of learners. The fact that you've got you know, the, the um, teacherly authority in the room is important, but we as a group are going to look at this together. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I would stress that, that this one, you know, it, you know, it's so aligned with my own way of thinking about education um, that we should, you know, aspire to achieve collective, uh, you know, kind of knowledge rather than just the teacher is giving the students knowledge, again, in a didactic manner quite often, and then pouring that knowledge into the student. It, it, there are ways of designing learning so that we can work together on that, yeah? Yeah, for sure. And I feel like, you know, as I'm two weeks out of graduation, fresh grad, I'm starting to realize that as you speak about lifelong learning and, and really taking the classroom beyond the, the space of a school and these educational facilities, I think increasingly you're looking at more and more collaborative collaborative learning because there are going to be fewer authority figures that spoon feed you information as you go out into the world. And I think if you do want to keep learning and you want to keep those 
you know, intellectual muscles and keep that intellectual curiosity pumping in you, you do need to be trained from a pretty young age to to get comfortable with this collaborative learning. Because I think it is not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's necessarily better than, than authority-based learning because I think it's a very personal mm-hmm. um, choice. But I think it's it's different and it takes time to learn for sure. Amana, I'm curious to see since you know, we're, we're sort of in different spaces now. I just left and you're sort of stepping into GCSE and IB. Do you feel like you're starting to experience a shift in your learning where in the classroom things are getting a bit more collaborative and teachers are, are becoming a bit more creative with their learning and teaching methods? Yeah, I definitely think so, especially with certain subjects more mm-hmm. than others. Like, for example, I think in media and in computer science where these are like ever-evolving industries that are changing there's more of an opportunity to be collaborative and to really learn from each other and I think this kind of goes back to you know our education system was initially built on the industrial revolution model Mm. and so naturally it focuses more on rote learning and memorization and IQ but these things are really skills that are they're not so much as important now because artificial intelligence and machine learning and things that we are building are able to do these things so much better than us so that it really it really brings to question what we really need to be teaching the young people today so that they're able to have not only just knowledge and skills but they're actually able to apply these with creativity to actually solve real world problems sure. yeah if we've got any hope in the future that's essential isn't it mm-hmm. um i mean to come back to, to steen for a second i think the most salient point of all for us in terms of technology is the fact that his approach, well, his overall approach to the digital world is one that, that you know we need to think about. And he differentiates between sources of online information and learning. So going on the internet does not mean you are learning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that all of us, both students and, 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 and adults alike, um, need to you know think about a bit more. So as consumers of the internet, we're maybe not always aware you know, of this, you know, although as outlined in our discussions, you know, of late on the show, we're increasingly aware of the drivers which take us onto the net, you know, often habitual, algorithms luring us back, but not necessarily valuable and certainly not learning. Yeah. Um, And he advocates for a future education which involves fully exploring our potential as human beings. And I think we would all acknowledge in this room that as as good, I think, as, as the ESF education system is, and I think we have a far better education system than most in the world, and we're quite privileged to have, to have got that. It's not tapping into things like, you know, like how would you survive, you know, in a kind of more apocalyptic setting? Or how would we, do we understand the natural world around us even? I would say the majority have absolutely no idea. We wouldn't be able to um, define the kind of uh, fauna and flora that's out in, in, in the outside world. Um, so he talks about 13 social miracles which he believes needs to happen, a sort of reimagination of our school systems. So technology, you know, rather than just a tool for online learning, which is what it's been for the last couple of years, is driven not by the kind of current profit-related system, but rather is driven by learning itself. In other words, social systems where we need to, we try to harness the objectives of learning, not making a profit, yeah, you, you see the, the difference there, yeah? And clearly for this to happen, our social systems really have to be transformed. 
Yeah, these definitely sound like really interesting ideas, especially how we actually need to change our social systems in order to have a better, like a more a reimagination of our school systems and to change them and make them more better at equipping the students for the future. But I really want to find out, do you actually think that it's realistic for, the, for these changes to be made in our lifetime? And how have you started to go about achieving some of these things in your own life, Mr. Williamson? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying for a second that the likes of Tristan Harris, you know, you, you were citing Social Dilemma uh, earlier on, Amana, or Daniel Smachtenberger or, or Zach Steen have all the answers. Um, but I think that they're beginning to ask the right questions and they're starting to offer solutions that are worth testing for us, you know, as, 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 as people interested in education and certainly a step in the right direction for humanity as a whole. In terms of my own steps, I would... You know, I guess this brings us nicely to the Humane Technology course, which I haven't really spoken about very much yet, and that I completed over Easter. The course, you know, asks its participants to consider a number of key factors when designing for the future, especially when using technology. So, you know, I guess this in turn has led me uh, to running an ESF-wide CPD, uh, so, you know, a continual professional development session for teachers in August, which um, I'm going to be running with a with a a colleague from Chartin College, um, and the title of the workshop is The Humane Technologist, Evaluating Technology Tools and Teaching and Learning Post-Zoom. And my little spiel for the, the session is, in the wake of online learning and increasing concerns about the privacy associated with the EdTech tools we use in our classrooms, this session will evaluate the effectiveness of our current EdTech tools alongside the ethical concerns of our students becoming behavioural surpluses data a reassessment of EdTech pedagogy through an ethical lens. Now, we would need a really lengthy extended show for me to go into detail about all of the main key ideas from the course, you know, the concepts and the resources, etc. But just to name a few, I'd, I'd maybe start with Danella Meadows and her leverage points for intervening in a system. Now, this is like a simplified version, uh, you know, of this presented on the course itself but it shows you these incremental changes that are required, first of all, at a platform level. So if you're making a change, for instance, on the VLE, for instance, in school, or via internal governance, in terms of you know, who's making the decisions and who has the power to make those decisions and, and what we're making those decisions based on. And that that will eventually, after several more steps along the way, lead to kind of cultural, or, or cultural change or a paradigm shift as the end goal is clearly the most difficult to achieve. Yeah? And then secondly, another key takeaway was the difference between complicated and complex systems. And Chloe, I think you'll like where this has kind of taken me in my thinking. So a complicated system, which on the course was defined like a jet engine, for instance, um, can be studied, analyzed, understood. Then we can accurately predict how the engine will work. Yeah, so that's, that, that's complicated. However, if you think about complex systems like the global biosphere, for instance, you know, this kind of evolves and it adapts. So I like the way in which the course suggests that by studying a complex system, we can almost become part of the system itself. Yeah, we, we, we understand it um, by, by almost being part of it. Um, just to come back to the point actually on um uh, the the platform level and the the sort of tiered um, levels of, of change that you'd have to go about to make um, shifts within the technological space. 
I think it's quite interesting that these are are sort of seen as individual steps because I think increasingly we've been we've been seeing that sometimes external regulation actually needs to be enacted before you can you can change internal governance and platform changes especially with with talks about antitrust you know we're thinking that these platform changes and these tech firms are having more and more influence on public policy actually and and culture and paradigm and the economy itself because they contribute to such a large portion of of earnings um and wages and jobs as well so i think it's interesting to see this this model as a starting point as, as sort of a launch pad for this conversation but i think increasingly it's becoming more and more interconnected which is why i as as you rightly imagined i do really like that complex system analogy because i think it says that instead of trying to change technology or stop it because it's we're almost at the point of no return now we are evolving and adapting with it and i think that's sort of the the reckoning that we've come to in the past few years is that we can't stop where it's going it could get dystopian but before it does we have to be able to take a clear stance ethically on where we want technology to go and and be able to steer it in terms of programmers and and governors and public policy makers and everyone be on a similar page where we can be sure that technology is being used for good which means that that you know education has an even bigger role than ever before sure. to make sure that we understand the problems because i the, the complexity of the problems can also you know lead to this kind of nihilistic approach where people just think it's too complicated it's too hard what can i do i'm just a little person in all of this um and i think that we've got to get beyond that um we've got to get serious about tackling those problems and that means everyone's got to do their bit whether it's that you know you're designing your product in a more conscientious way and that you're aware of the externalities of your product in terms of how complicated and how many different places that that product has to be sourced from and making sure that the product therefore is is going to be is going to have some longevity yeah um so that you're not being encouraged to just replace it for the sake of it in 2 years time which means we're having to use more oil to extract that the goods that are required to then get the the you know the, the the raw materials you know it's it's that type of i suppose joined up thinking we we have to elevate to that point so that everybody is thinking in that way everyone's asking the same questions mm-hmm. which means that we're not buying you know for instance clothes as quickly as we do and getting rid of them so quickly when they're still perfectly good they're just not fashionable anymore that shouldn't necessarily be a reason as to why you have to then get rid of something Um, and that's maybe a limited example but i'm talking about that across the board in terms of you know product design generally um as you maybe you know mention that both schmachtenberger and steen they worked on 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 an initiative at the moment that i've been reading about which is called the consilience project and i think they see consilience the word itself as meaning a kind of unity of knowledge and they've already published several fascinating papers most of which i've been reading over the last few months on the mtr this is what i mean about deep reading and taking my time and thinking about the issues that are being outlined and they're not easy for precisely the reason that the challenge we face existentially are not easy either yeah so there's no easy solution and i think if we find easy solutions we should be suspicious of those um the the solutions require consilience you know and for that connections on our learning need to be nurtured and, and harnessed 
Um, so, you know, Chloe, I was, I was your TOK teacher this year. I think TOK is one area in which this kind of consilience is happening in school. And it's also happening in global thinking. But I think that once the gamification of education is reflected by GCSEs, for instance, and students start chasing grades and, and, and numbers, A stars or nines or whatever it might be, um, they have pre precious little time to consider those interconnections anymore. Um, there's maybe a, a little bit more of it as part of the IBDP or the IBCP experience through the core, but not nearly as much as there probably needs to be. Absolutely. I think having gone through the IB myself, it I, that desire to want to learn more about the interconnectedness and be able to make links between your subjects and everything else you learn, I think it really does have to be internal. Yeah. I think there's only so much a course curriculum can instill in you to help you pave those paths, but you really do have to take that first step to think, this concept I learned in TOK, how does that affect you know sustainability? How does that affect this formula that I learned in math? It, it sounds crazy when you're starting to think about it. But I think that is the sort of learners that we are, you know, hoping to, to nurture in, in schools like ours. That's meta-learning. That's, yeah. I think, what Zach Steen exactly. is talking about, that, you know, learning to learn, which is something that one of our deputy yeah. principals, you know, um, Alison mm -hmm. Hampshire, first introduced back in, it must have been 2008 or 2009. And I don't think the school was probably ready for those kind of radical ideals at the time. Uh, I'm sure even for her, she didn't necessarily envisage that that would become so important in mm -hmm. terms of where we were going to be as a species, you know, within 10, 15 years later. But I think you're absolutely right, Chloe, and it, it, it requires for, for us within a learning environment, and I'm talking about society here, not just in a school, but in a society as a whole, to nurture the development of those skills in independent learning, to be self reflective to be able to see how learning operates and to reflect on what the purpose of it is as a whole and that, that's a really complicated you know interconnected set of issues yeah so some of these ideas that we're talking about are definitely very interesting and they also i think they also it's it's kind of at many levels because even doing the gcse course something that i have noticed is that we tend to be very focused on just getting the grades and getting the outcomes but it's very important to really consider some of these interconnections because I guess that's really the tr like the true knowledge and the true understanding that you have to gain from learning a subject. So um, from my own experience and also what I've heard from seniors, Mr. Williamson, you completely transform every student who has the privilege to meet you and truly go out of your way to do everything in your power to offer them advice and provide support. You act as the main pillar of support for student-led initiatives and work tirelessly to pro to provide um, out-of-school opportunities to your students and encourage their personal growth. From providing these opportunities, always making yourself accessible to students at lunches and breaks, and keeping the media course current and topical, as well as, of course, managing the DLC and your numerous other responsibilities around school. It's clearly that it's clear that we have very that we're very fortunate that educators like you exist. Well, can I just say thank you very much for saying that, Amana, and also thank you for taking the time to express those sentiments. Um, you know, Zach Steen talks about the role of the village elder, yeah? Um, not literally, as in our tribal cultures, but more so the ability to bring learning from the local community into our learning experiences. And, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could do more of this, you know, kind of like pop-up schooling, so to speak? And I think for me, the role of the village elder is to pass on those experiences and perhaps some wisdom 
you know, of life experience, you know, to you, to the next generation. And given, you know, that life is hard, let's be honest about it, and much of this experience, you know, can be born out of difficulties and, and experience that's hard won and hard earned, you know, even sometimes through suffering, yeah? So I think Steen is right, and one of the most transformative learning experience of my teaching career during the challenges of online learning has been this podcast, yeah? Um, you know, perhaps because it's collaborative and, you know, we've been learning together. You know, I've learned a lot from the many contributions that have been made, um, you know, in the short time that I've been working with you on the show, um, Amana, um, and, you know, for the longer period of time, Chloe, with you in terms of the, the contributions that you've made. So I think that, you know, we've been learning together and, and I kind of wish I could develop the value of that experience, but to scale. Yeah. So, uh, you know, through the courses that I teach, we, we, we sort of take this on board. Absolutely. And, and since we're preaching our thanks anyway, um, I just wanted to say, Mr. Williams, and I think what truly makes you a great educator is that you listen to us and you truly do take on feedback and you use that on a on a personal level to really reflect on what you could be doing differently as as an educator and what you could be learning in your own time. And I think that is honestly much appreciated coming from all your students because it shows that you're you're willing to learn with us and that it is a joint process where we are trying to figure out this very ever-evolving technological, ethical, very complicated philosophical space sometimes even, and we're all navigating it together. So I think that is very reassuring and I just wanted to thank you as well for everything you've done for us. Thanks, Chloe, and I, I, I agree with that entirely. Potty. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon? Potty, the name of the podcast studio. Did you hear any of my impassioned speech of the last few minutes, Jasmine? Uh, no. I was thinking about a podcast studio name. Um, okay, well, this is awkward. Do you think we should just close out the show? I'm not. Yes, good idea, Chloe. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But I would like to say a huge thank you to Chloe Jazzy Lau for giving up her time to help host the show with us and talk about all things tech-related. Thanks also to our production team, led by Emily Wong and Jasmine Hun. We will be back soon with the final episode of the third season with more tech-related content. Stay safe wherever you are listening to the Tech Bubble, and in the meantime, as ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. What would you like to discuss? If you have any ideas, questions, or feedback, then please write to digileaders at webmail.sis.edu.hk that's D-I-G-I, leaders at webmail.ss.edu.hk. And don't forget to rate or like the show on Spotify, YouTube, or wherever possible. As always, thanks for joining us. Are you satisfied with that, Jasmine? And yeah. Can we close the show? Yep. Our producer says we can close the show behind the glass. Let's close the show. <laughs>